0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. We came, we saw, we kicked his ass.
1: I am Connor McLeod of the Clan McCloud. I was born in 1518
0: in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loxia. I am immortal. I suppose we have to register you as the lethal weapon. Your move, creep. What is your major malfunction, nuttion? It says 100% guaranteed, you moron, Listen, If you don't shut up, I'm gonna kick 100% of your ass. This town needs an enema. Who are you then? in the ointment, huh? I won't be in the wrench. You're in the ass. Greed is good.
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute, Doc, uh, Are you telling me that you built a time machine?
0: Hey, everybody, we're all going to get late. Excellent. <laughs> Good morning, Vietnam.
1: Life moves
2: pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Now don't call me sure. I'm
1: not
0: bad. I'm just drawn
2: that way. You close. give them to me.
0: Kiss my ass. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Inconceivable! I've got a little challenge for you, Sark. A new recruit. It's a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner.
1: Train him for the games. Let him cope for a while and blow him away.
0: Game over, man.
3: game over. Hello. And welcome to episode 3 of Every 80s Movie Ever Made, or EMEM for those hip-hop happening groupsters out there. So what do you think of the new title sequence? Good, eh? I've spent a good few, er, uh, minutes on that. Bit long, maybe? Uh yeah, I thought so too. But give it a couple of episodes and I'll probably change it again. Anyway, thanks for joining me, Ben Bowers, hello, as I attempt to watch nearly 1,000 80s movies in an effort to find out if that decade and film was actually as good as we all remember. I've collated a list from two sources the Wikipedia page for 1980s in film, and the 80s movies website, Fast Rewind. That's www.fast-rewind.com. During my viewings, I'll try to find out not only who was involved, but what else they've worked on and how they're doing nowadays. There'll be some review notes looking at the film as objectively as possible, within the context of someone living in the UK 30 years later, mind you. And if you're lucky, there may even be some secret bonus content featuring music from, or at least linked to, the film in question. If you've got any recommendations for more obscure 80s films that don't appear on those two pages, you can email me on emem at hotmail.co.uk, that's E-E-M-E-M, or get hold of me on Twitter using at every80smovie, that's every 80 movie, or simply hashtag that 80 show Wait, that sounds like someone else. So, a new intro, a potentially less bassy microphone setting, although we live in hope, let's get on with episode three. New robot voice, away you go! Baby Boom, released in 1987. With a budget estimated at $15 million, Baby Boom grossed $1.4 million on its opening weekend towards a total US box office of $29.7 million. It also inspired a spin-off TV show of the same name, which ran for only eight episodes the following year before being canned. The Director Charles Shire born in 1941. His father, Melville, was a film director of his own who worked with D.W. Griffith and was one of the founders of the Directors Guild of America. He worked his way up to head writer for the Odd Couple TV series and got his first feature film writing credit for Smokey and the Bandit in 1977. Two years later, he teamed up with Nancy Myers to co-write Private Benjamin, which was released in 1980 and was a massive success, especially given that a female lead role was considered box office poison at the time. He married Myers that year, and after his directorial debut with Irreconcilable Differences in 1984, co-wrote Baby Boom with his wife. They worked together again on the remake of Father of the Bride, starring Steve Martin in 1991, and in 1995 released a sequel, the imaginatively titled Father of the Bride Part 2. In between those, he directed the poorly received romantic comedy I Love Trouble. Myers and Shire both worked on yet another remake in 1997, The Parent Trap, starring a not-yet-broken Lindsay Lohan, and this time directed by Myers husband and wife then split, probably arguing over what film to remake next, and Shy directed the lush-looking but somewhat empty The Affair of the Necklace in 2001. Working on an original piece must have scared him because his next feature was, you guessed it, a remake of the Michael Caine movie Alfie, released in 2004. The original wasn't that great, the new version was even worse, but mainly because I can't stand Jude one-trick pony Law. His next work is apparently Eloise in Paris, based on a 1950s children's book. Well, at least it's not a remake. The stars. Diane Keaton, born Diane Hall in 1946. She got her first major stage role in the Broadway rock musical Hair. As understudy to the lead, she gained attention by not removing any of her clothing. Wow, everybody else must have been absolute sluts. In 1970, Woody Allen cast her in his Broadway play, Play It Against Sam, and it was during this time that she became involved with Allen and appeared in a number of his films, the first being a screen adaptation of the stage play. That same year, Frances Ford Coppola cast her as Kay in the Oscar-winning The Godfather, and she was on her way to stardom. She reprised that role in the film's first sequel, The Godfather Part II, in 1974, and then appeared with Woody Allen again in 1973's Sleeper and Love and Death two years later. In 1977, she broke away from her comedy image to appear in the chilling Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which won her a Golden Globe nomination. It was the same year that she appeared in what many regard as her best performance, in the title role of Annie Hall, which Allen wrote specifically for her. Her real last name is Hall and her nickname is Annie, and which earned her a Best Actress Oscar. She's had another three nominations since. After two more Alan films in the next two years, she began to appear infrequently in movies and in the early 90s took up a little TV directing, including an episode of Twin Peaks. In the mid to late 90s, she began to rise up the ladder again as she began to portray more mature roles. The First Wives Club, Marvin's Room and a 2003 Oscar nom for Something's Gotta Give brought her back into the public eye. She still tends not to appear in more than one or two films per year, but she's still considered a highly regarded actress. Can't say I agree, though. Is there something about her I just don't get? Maybe it's a slight kookiness, maybe it's her glasses, even though I wear glasses. I don't know, she just turns me off. Speaking of which, in 1996, she was number 46 in Empire Magazine's 100 Sexiest Film Stars in History. Oh, and she's no relation to Michael Keaton. She changed her last name as there was already a Diane Hall logged in the Actors Guild. Michael Keaton is actually named Malcolm Douglas, and he chose the surname Keaton as he liked Diane's name. So, there you go. Sam Shepard was born in 1943. In 1962, a touring theatre company visited his hometown, and he joined up and left home to tour with them. He spent nearly two years with the company, and eventually settled in New York, where he began writing plays, moving to London in 1971, but returning back to New York in 74. He gained some small acting roles in the 80s, but it was his role as Chuck Eager in 1983's The Right Stuff that brought him to attention earning him an Oscar nomination the following year. He continued to focus on playwriting, but as his face became more weathered and his voice got more gruff, he started picking up character roles which have become mainly authority figures. Sawfish, Blackhawk Down and Stealth are all great examples, but only one of those is actually a decent film. He's your go-to guy for a no-nonsense captain, sergeant or major. Harold Ramis was born in 1944 and was covered not two episodes ago with Stripes. However, if you haven't listened to that one yet... He worked in a mental institution for seven months, which he claims gave him great preparation for dealing with actors. He co-wrote Animal House Meatballs and Ghostbusters 1 and 2, which he also starred in, but arguably his greatest work is 1993's Groundhog Day, which he wrote and directed. Equally arguably is his worst work, which is the fucking appalling Neanderthal comedy Year One, starring Jack Black and Michael Serra. Sam Wanamaker was born in 1919. He trained in Chicago as an actor, but moved and settled in London in 1952 after learning he'd been blacklisted during the McCarthy Red Scare period when filming Mr. Denning Drives North. He's worked as both a director and actor in films and TV. His best-known appearances include The Spiral Staircase in 1975, Private Benjamin in 1980, Raw Deal in 86, Superman four The Quest for Peace in 1987. Maybe not that last one. He died from cancer in 1993. One of his daughters, Zoe, is well known in the UK, mainly for her occurring role in the mystifyingly popular My Family. James Spader, although he prefers to be called Jimmy, was born in 1960 and was the son of two teachers. And as you would expect with that, he dropped out of school in the 11th grade. And he bussed tables, taught yoga and literally shoveled shit while he tried to land his first acting roles. His first major role was as Brooke Shields' brother in 1981's Endless Love, before landing others such as 1986's Pretty in Pink and 1987's Mannequin. He was highly regarded in 1989's Sex, Lies and Videotape, and tended to pick up roles as sleazy bad guys before he hit the big time again as the geeky hero in 1994's Stargate. In 2003, he joined the cast of the TV series The Practice, and then featured heavily in its more popular spin-off Boston Legal. He also had a recurring role in the US version of The Office. He refuses to watch anything he's appeared in, which is actually quite easy for him as his eyesight is about as bad as mine. In other words, fucking terrible. Just know this, James Spader can't wear contact lenses, so in any scene you see him, where he's not wearing glasses, he can't see the actor stood in front of him. Fortunately, he's got a photographic memory, which means he can read the page in his mind as he's performing, and the only time he might fuck up a line is if two similar words are near each other on the page. Awesome. Pat Hingle, born Martin Patterson Hingle in 1924, served in the Navy in World War II before going back to university and hooking up with the drama department as a way to score with girls. A number of stage and small TV roles in the 50s were halted when he fell 54 feet down a lift shaft, fracturing nearly every bone in his body and causing him to lose his little finger. As in it was cut off, not that he misplaced it. He was close to death for two weeks and took over a year to fully recover. He's known for his crinkly face and gruff voice, and as well as featuring in movies such as Brewster's Millions and Sudden Impact, his best-known role was as Commissioner Gordon in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman and its three increasingly shitty sequels. He died in 2009. Christina and Michelle Kellady, born in 1986, played Baby Elizabeth and also appeared in the TV spin-off series. Christina, a double major in mathematics and secondary education, and Michelle, also a double major in elementary education and special education, followed in their parents' footsteps and became teachers. They had no desire to continue their acting careers. Although never say never, eh? (laughs) Along with the director, Charles Shire, Baby Boom was co-written by Nancy Myers, born in 1949, and she also co-produced. Known mainly for her light and frothy romantic comedies, her career took off following her writing work on Private Benjamin, which earned her an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, along with Shire and Harvey Miller. Previously mentioned Shire films were mainly written and produced by Myers before her directorial debut with the Parent Trap remake in 1998. She followed this with the smash hit What Women Want in 2000, reunited with Diane Keaton when directing Something's Gotta Give in 2003, and also gave the world The Holiday in 2006 and It's Complicated in 2009. She's been quiet for the last couple of years. Maybe she's mulling over which old romantic comedy to remake next. The Wyatt played by Diane Keaton, is a driven Manhattan career woman, nicknamed the Tiger Lady, whose fast-paced lifestyle leaves her with no time for romance or relaxation, although she does derive pleasure from her frantic schedule and demanding job. She works as a management consultant and lives with an investment banker, Stephen, played by Harold Ramis, whose job and lifestyle are equally hectic. Her life is thrown into turmoil when she inherits a toddler, Elizabeth, played by twins Christina and Michelle Kennedy, from a deceased cousin whom she hadn't seen since 1954. Caring for the child occupies much of her time and her chances of becoming a partner in the company begin to suffer. Wyatt tries to give Elizabeth up for adoption but discovers that in the meantime she's grown too attached to the child, forcing a re-evaluation of her priorities, particularly after her major contract is handed to her previous assistant, the slightly backstabbing Ken, played by James Spader. As a result, she moves into a 64-acre farmhouse in the picturesque village of Hadleyville, Vermont. Purchasing the home without first having seen it in person or having it inspected... Duh! She finds it's riddled with problems: corroded plumbing, a collapsing roof, a well that's run dry, suffering a nervous breakdown, and on the brink of financial collapse. She sees an opportunity to sell the homemade baby food applesauce that she concocted for Elizabeth, made from fresh ingredients in her own orchard. Amid the clamor for her new products, she develops a relationship with local veterinarian vet, vet, local vet Jeff Cooper, played by Sam Shepard. Initially, she opposes his advances and is focused on returning to New York as quickly as possible. However, finding a buyer for the ramshackle house proves almost impossible, and in turn, her feelings for Jeff begin to grow. After a rough start, she succeeds in selling orders for Country Baby, the brand name for her gourmet baby food, and soon business is booming. Hey, there you go. Finally, her old boss and his client, played by Sam Wanamaker and Pat Hingle, take notice. They offer to buy her company for millions of dollars take her product nationwide, and give her back the career and high prestige lifestyle she was hoping for. But, on the brink of accepting, she decides that she can grow her enterprise on her own without having to sacrifice her personal life. She returns to Vermont to continue her new life with her lover and her now-adopted daughter. Movie Trivia So here's some things you may not know about the movie Baby Boom. Number 1. Kim Basinger was offered the role of J.C. Wyatt, but she turned it down. Number two, J.C. Wyatt worked for Sloan Curtis Advertising, the same company Mel Gibson works for in Nancy Meyer's movie What Women Want. Number three, the end credits list the film is For Annie, who's the little girl sitting with her dog in the vet's office at the end of the film. That girl in question is Annie Meyer Shire, daughter of the writers and director. Number four, in Meyer's directorial debut The Parent Trap, the twins played by Lindsay Lohan are named Annie and Hallie, named after Meyer's two daughters. This time, the end credits list the film is For Hallie. And you thought parents sharing pictures of their sprogs on Facebook was bad enough, eh? Review notes. Okay, so there wasn't a lot of movie trivia. So here's a few review notes that I took while I was watching the movie. There's quite a weird gag within the first couple of minutes. JC shakes this guy's hand on the street to say hello, and as he walks off, he looks at his hand and shakes it loose. I think it's because she's supposed to have a really tight manly handshake, but it actually looks like she's got sweaty palms or something, and he's wondering what on earth it is on his hand. You could blame the bit part actor by all means, but it comes across totally the wrong way. Number two, there's not a bad four-minute sex gag between JC and Egon, uh, Stephen. Uh, He leans over, asks her if she wants to have sex. Camera pans to the clock, it's 11.46. Crossfade to 11.50, JC puts her glasses on, Egon, uh, Stephen says, wow, that was amazing. Although four minutes... They must have done it at least twice. Number three, would social services just hand over a baby at an airport? I don't fucking think so, somehow. Number four, JC tries to feed Elizabeth fancy pasta and sauce and gets a fistful thrown in her face. The trouble is, due to the camera angle, it looks like it's been thrown by a major league picture. Now, I've got a three-year-old baby daughter, and trust me, they can't throw that hard. Number five, although the fight with the nappies is fucking bang on. The first couple of times trying to put those damn things on, they're a fucking nightmare. Number six, some of the soundtrack sounds like Hill Street Blues. It's really quite strange. Number seven, pretty much every joke is telegraphed about five minutes in advance. Number eight, it really is a film of two halves. In the first half, JC has to deal with a baby. In the second half, she has to deal with living in the country. And it's why, whenever I've thought back to watching the film on the odd occasions that I have, it seemed like it's about three hours long, essentially because it's two separate movies. Number nine. Make him blonde and Sam Shepard would be the absolute spit of Owen Wilson. He's even got that big bloody nose. In fact, you could probably remake this with Owen Wilson and, I don't know, Jennifer Aniston. She's quite similar to Diane Keaton. She's got that quirky kookiness. Uh, Babies are it boring, though. Maybe swap it for, uh, I don't know, Labrador, call it Marley. Oh, wait, hang on a minute. Number ten. JC, this powerful, hard-working, go-getting businesswoman who doesn't take any shit, is stopped absolutely dead in her tracks with a forceful, passionate, manly man kiss from Jeff. And all that feminist goodwill the film's earned in the previous hour or so goes straight out the window as she goes all gooey and girly. Number 11. I've only done three film reviews so far, and this is the second with spinny newspaper headlines coming up into the screen. Must be an 80s thing. Number 12. Everybody else comes back at the end. There's Wanamaker's character, Pat Hingle, James Spader. They're all there at the end of the film as she's getting her redemption. But there's no Egon, uh, Harold Ramis. I mean, all right, she's shacked up with a hunky vet, but it's Egon Spengler. Can't he get a goodbye shag or something? And finally, number 13, it makes absolutely no sense for JC to turn down the offer. She's got the ability here to set her demands and screw over Fritz and Ken and get a life sorted for Elizabeth while still maintaining control over her business. Now, by turning it down, she's making life even more difficult for her because there's a really good chance that the food chain company will get a competitor and screw her over Royally. So there you go. The <laughs> It's a bit like the top of a cappuccino. It's soft, it's light, it's frothy, and it's just a little bit pointless. It's totally targeted at women, but I get what the film was trying to achieve. Gain some respect for business women in a time when they were still struggling to gain some at the top end of the workplace. But unfortunately, it still essentially says that parental responsibilities are the most important thing in a woman's life, along with a hunky man to give you a big kiss and look after you. Still not that keen on Diane Keaton and a kooky, stressed out character really does nothing for me. But I didn't hate it and it's completely inoffensive and every time I think about the odd times that I've watched some of this it always seems to have been on a Sunday afternoon while it's raining outside and there's nothing else on TV which pretty much sums up the best viewing experience to watch this film. However, I did find a closeness to this and I connected with it more now that I have a daughter of my own. There were parts of it Say when Elizabeth was ill and she, um, JC was worried about her. Were well, I properly connected because I'd been through that myself? It's probably about the most neutral review I think I've ever given for a film, but this is probably because it's one of the most neutral films I've ever seen. The or sequel? Well, there's been no remake as such, but technically it's had a sequel, as there was the spin-off TV series, but I've never seen that. Don't really have any desire to either. It's definitely a movie of its time, pushing the 80s feminist ideology to the fore, similar to lines of Working Girl, which came out the following year. Women in business were clawing the way to the top, and this was showing that it was possible, eventually, to juggle both family life and a successful business career. In fact, just thought of a kind of remake, only with genders reversed, and one could say that's a sign of how times have changed. Jersey Girl, written and directed by Kevin Smith, starring Ben Affleck. High-powered businessman, has to rebuild his life when he's saddled with looking after a child emasculated man struggling in a world dominated by powerful women yeah alright that might be pushing it too far but you're still a copycat bastard slime and bob Some clips so here's some clippy clips from the film uh, this is the very start um, and somehow just with the music you can tell it was made in the 80s <laughs> Sounds like a bloody action movie or something. Oh, baby boom as in BOOM EXPLOSIONS! Oh no, wait, now it's turned into fucking Cagney and Lacey. 53% Fifty three percent of the American workforce is female.
2: Three generations of women that turned a thousand years of tradition on its ear. As little girls, they were told to grow up and marry doctors and lawyers. Instead, they grew up and became doctors and lawyers. They moved out of the pink ghetto and into the executive suite.
3: Pink ghetto? Eh? What? Where exactly is the pink ghetto?
2: Sociologists say the new working woman is a phenomenon of our time. Take J.C. Wyatt, for example. Graduated first in her class at Yale, got her MBA at Harvard, has a corner office at the corner of 58th
3: and Park. Ah, by the way, she doesn't actually have a corner office, so that's a lie. She works five to nine. Hang on, did she just say she works five to nine? So she only does four hours worth of work? what a lazy cow
2: she makes six figures a year and they call her the tiger lady married to her job she lives with an investment banker married to his they collect African art co-own their co-op and have separate but equal IRA accounts one would take it for granted that a woman like this has it all one must never take anything for granted
3: see I'm not actually sure what this voiceover is supposed to be. It sounds like it's from a TV show or documentary, but it's not referenced as the film begins. It's not Diane Keaton, so it's not a character monologue, and there's no voiceover at any other point in the film. It's just a really clumsy way of introducing the lead character and backstory. It's proper Basil Exposition. Next, a rather cheap and obvious way to denote she's a high powered businesswoman as she uses lots of acronyms.
1: Okay, now, Sheldrake moved up the deadline and consolidated, so don't make any plans for the weekend. This weekend? Is there a problem? No, it's just that I have tickets to the ballet that I've waited six months. No problem. All right, tell Steve nine is fine for dinner and see if you can get us into jams. If they don't have a good table, try and get something else. Ken, I need the P&Ls on Atlantic Overseas. I also need the latest ZBBs and PBBs. And, Robin, I want you to get me the CEO of IBC ASAP. Excuse me, Miss Wyatt. Uh-huh. Mr. Curtis wants to know if you're free for dinner tonight. Absolutely. Cancel, Stephen. And good morning to you too, Miss Wyatt.
3: And whenever you get somebody using lots of acronyms, they always finish it off with ASAP every fucking time. And introducing the gayest waiter ever.
0: Okay, the
1: Montana lamb with the rocket leaf and goat cheese salad, and the lime grilled free-range chicken with the pumpkin pasta and dandelion greens. Enjoy. Thanks. I'm Philip, if you need me.
3: Thank you. Ever so slightly stereotypical, don't you think? Right, so here's Sam Wanamaker putting it straight for all you ladies out there.
0: I mean, a man can be a success and still have a personal life, a full personal life. My wife is there for me whenever I need her. I mean, she raises the kids, she uh, decorates, she... I don't know what the hell she does. (laughs) But she (laughs) takes care of things. I guess what, what I'm saying is I'm lucky. I can have it all.
3: Yeah, just don't bother, little chickadees. There's too many problems out there for you ladies to be dealing with. So let's meet the world's friendliest toy store employee. Believe me, JC, you made the right choice. You're going to be a partner,
0: for Christ's sake. Uh-huh. Your career comes first. Look at it this way. Yeah. You spent a few
1: days with her. You got her all these toys. I know. $1,700 worth of clothes. Come on, that's not a bad haul, if you ask me. Well, I just want to say thank you for your support, Jesus. Hey, no problem. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
3: Honestly, this guy's not seen at any point in the film beforehand. She's clearly had no reason to go to a toy store before. And yet, as she walks out alongside about $5,000 worth of toys, Jesus is telling her how to live her life. Man, she must really have run her mouth off in there. So, let's meet some scary adoptive parents.
1: This is Mr and Mrs White. Hi. The Whites have been very anxious to meet Elizabeth.
0: Before we take her off your hands, I want to hear from the horse's mouth that there's no chance of us getting a male.
1: The agency representative that came out to our motorhome said we might have a chance of getting a boy. So, father here just wants to make sure that no stone's been left unturned. We
2: did try to locate a boy for you, but there are no boys available at this
1: time.
0: Well, then, is she all right for you, Mother? Yes, sir. Now, she's got all of her shots and everything.
1: Oh, Lord, Merle, it's not a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I understand you bought Elizabeth some new clothes. Oh, yes, I just I bought just a couple of things. You see, she's just uh, getting over a cold, so I brought her medicine and... Uh... And, uh, well, she, she takes a quarter of a teaspoon every four hours, and I packed her measuring spoon in with her clothes and toys.
0: The clothes and toys won't be necessary.
1: Where are you folks from? I mean, if I'm allowed to ask. We'll be moving back to Duluth next week. Most of Merle's family is out that way now, and our pastor is out there and all. I'm sure Fern will like it just fine.
2: Fern?
3: Oh, Oh, look, they're a pair of religious nuts. They're always nutty. And speaking of which, here's another religious nut for you.
1: Hi, I'm here for the nanny interview. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm originally from Wichita, Kansas. Oh, and what brought you to New York? The Lord... Uh Uh-huh. Well, thank you very much for coming by.
3: Tell you what, let's go for the hat-trick and have another religious nut.
1: I will teach your daughter to properly respect a man. I speak only when spoken to. I do not need a bed. I prefer to sleep on the floor.
3: Oh, wait, she's wearing a burqa? Oh, casual racism! Yay! Next, some scheduling mothers. (laughs)
2: What about... Uh, a week from Wednesday for Junior Symphony. No, 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 Nicole Cole has drama on Wednesdays. Ah. Uh-huh. Ben's got his playgroup in French on Monday, Jimboree on Tuesday, computer readiness on Thursday. What about Friday? After violin, but before his shrink. Perfect.
3: See, this is one of those scenarios in the theatre where parents would turn to people who don't have kids and say, oh, that's so true, but you won't get it as you don't have any kids and therefore you never understand what we have to go through! Twats. Next, country bumpkins with a weird noise that's quite clearly dubbed. New
2: York Blades
3: does anybody have any idea what that was supposed to be? A word? A noise? I'll play again. New York Blades. Now, nah, still don't have a fucking clue. And as much as I love 80s music, that synth and sax stuff is utterly shit. Next, flappy-gully-willers means big snow, apparently.
0: Them pipes is corroded, miss. There's no way I can get this system going again. Oh, that's a bad break. It's going to be a mighty cold winter. Yeah, how do you know? Well, you see see them
1: birds? They're they're gully-willers. Oh. And when they're flapping their wings like that, it means big snow's coming. i better call the editor of the newspaper.
3: See, if a plumber said that to me, do you know what I'd say back to him? Fuck off, you shyster. So let's have a listen to Diane Keaton flipping out.
0: Uh-oh. Your, your well's dried up.
1: Oh. Oh, God, that's good. I thought it was something serious where well, you could just fill it up because there's a hose right around the back. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> fill it. Fill, fill it up. What? Fill, fill it up. Lady, you're You're, you're out of water. You're out of water. You're going to have to tap into the county line. Uh, And that's three miles down the road. Look, I'm almost out of money, (laughs) Mr. Boone. I don't understand these technicalities. Just tell me one thing, okay? Is this going to be expensive? Yep. Well, do you know, like, approximately how much this is going to cost me? Uh, No. No. Right, yeah. Well, just guess! Uh, Five, six thousand dollars, maybe more. Oh, well, that's just fine. That's it! i am had it! I can't make it here, okay? I mean, I am not... I am not Paul Bunyan. You know, right? I went to Harvard. I graduated at the top of my class for what? To spend my life fixing up this dilapidated shack? Well, you can just forget it. Because I'm going to get out of here. You see? I need to work. I need people. I need a social life. I need sex. P-p-p- please, please, I- I'm a married man. I'm going <laughs> and- to This the person supposed to be able to make in their lifetime i mean i am a career woman i am used to having phone lists and dinner meetings do you know what i mean uh no Not the i have been yupped and noped to death by you guys i have had it with whiskers and plaid look at me i am going nuts i used to be cute I'm not prepared for wells to run dry. I just want to turn on the faucet and have water. I don't want to know where it's coming from. Ah, another six thousand. Ah! Oh.
3: And then she passes out. To be honest, I could only understand about half of what she was going on about there. Next, I'm a vet. Not a bad little joke, this.
1: I'm so. I'm so lonely, Doctor. I'm so lonely. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, what is that? What's that? Uh,
2: that, That's uh, my next patient.
1: What do you mean?
2: I'm a vet. (laughs) Hi, Joe.
1: You're a what?
2: I'm a veterinarian. I'm
1: I'm screwing my guts out to a vet? I'm lying on a vet's table telling you about my sex life? What what do I have? The horse there on me, anyway. I thought you knew. white jacket you look like a real doctor you've got diplomas and a stethoscope <sighs> relax i wasn't going to put you to sleep for oh and what is that supposed to be vet humor or something look dr cooper i think it's highly unethical of you to allow an obviously emotionally unglued woman to sit here and think that you're a real doctor i mean i think i should report you the ama or the ava or the bma or whatever
3: <gasps> and diane katon gets stopped with a kiss and this is the point that the film just falls apart. Uh,
2: you know, uh, you're you and me are probably the only two people under 60 in the whole Haddonville County, so you might as well make the best of it.
1: Look, I appreciate you taking the time to chat, but I'm really not in the mood for idle conversation, so if it should happen again, I think we should both gracefully try to ignore each other. Because I'm not one of your little students who's going to feign every time you say hello. I am a tough, cold-career woman who has absolutely nothing in common with a veterinarian from Hadleyville. I have only one thing on my mind at this point in my life, and that is to get out of this moth-eaten town. And nothing here, including you, Dr. Charm, holds any interest for me whatsoever. So what do you think about that?
3: hard-nosed businesswoman all it took was a kiss and you've gone all girly girl see all that hard work for nothing right what's next the soundtrack composed by bill conti who was born in 1942 after composing some minor tv and film releases he landed the job of scoring a low-budget movie written by an unknown actor named sylvester stallone it was titled rocky in 1976 which became a huge smash you may well have heard of it His piece for the training montage, Gonna Fly Now, topped the Billboard single chart the following year. He followed up with the scores for Rockies 2 and 3, and also the Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only, which he landed after John Barry refused to work in the UK due to tax reasons. He also won an Oscar for his work on 1983's The Right Stuff. He has 141 titles listed on IMDb, including The Karate Kid 1 and 2, Rocky 5, but weirdly not 4... Necessary Roughness, Spy Hard, the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, and he returned back to work with Sly Stallone in 2006's Rocky Balboa. On top of that, he was also musical director for 19 Oscar award ceremonies. As for Baby Boom, well, the score is extremely twee when it needs to be and has a real overkill of screeching 80s sacks. The end credits is even worse with some really awful female la-la-la-ing going on. In fact, here comes a little bit now. (music) All right, all right, that's enough of that shit. It's not good, is it? It really isn't good. And as classic and iconic as the Rocky soundtrack is, Conti is doing himself no favours in my book here. Thank you very much. Two out of ten. Must try harder.
0: The next film. Boom!
3: There goes baby boom. Bye-bye. Out the park. So long now. Three down. 997 and possibly more to go. Holy crap. Well, onwards and upwards, so let's boot up my 80s computer and see what the next film under review is. Yes, come on, Secret Admirer, released in 1985, starring C. Thomas Howell. Why am I excited, you ask? Well, it's not about C. Thomas Howell, that's for starters, it's because Jan Hammer did the soundtrack, and I fucking love Jan Hammer. So, the next episode might be less about the film, which I think I last saw when I was about 12, but remember really loving, and more about how amazing Jan Hammer is. Woohoo! Remember, if you have any feedback or suggestions, you can get hold of me at emem at hotmail.co.uk or via Twitter on at every 80 movie. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye now! you still here? Uh, uh, I mean, oh, uh, you're still here. Ah, well, let's have some bonus content then. See, if it was released just a few years earlier, I'd have a really good excuse to play Boom, Shake the Room by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, because it's got Boom in the title. But unfortunately, it was released in 1993, and I've sworn to myself that I will only play 80s music in the bonus content section, which is a shame, because I fucking love that tune. Yo, back up now and give the brother room, the fuse is lit, and I'm about to go boom! Best known song from the Baby Boom soundtrack is Ever Changing Times, but it's a bit too bloody twee for me, so I've taken a look at the songs released in 1987 to see if there's anything that might tie in with the movie. It's a bit tenuous, but I've got a soft spot for Huey Lewis and the News, and they did release this single that year, so it's as good a reason as any to play the following track, Doing All For My Baby. Yeah, that's as good as it gets, so stop complaining, alright? Speaking of complaining, did you know that Huey Lewis sued Ray Parker Jr. over similarity between their song I Want a New Drug and the Ghostbusters theme? I didn't. I've listened to both. Don't really sound the same. Oh well, every day's your school day. So, I digress. Huey Lewis in the news, doing it all for my baby. Enjoy. Fuck it. You know what? It's my podcast, and Boom Shake the Room is a fucking great tune. So sod it. I'm playing it anyway. Pump it up, Prince.
0: Yo, back up now and give a brother room. The fuse is lit and I'm about to go boom. Mercy mercy, mercy me. Oh, my life was a cage, but on stage. For me yet? Up, well, yo, are y'all ready for me yet? Up, well, yo, are y'all ready for me yet? Up, well, here I go, here I go, here I, here I go, yo, dance in the aisles when the French steps to it, the rhymes are foot. That I never make a whack jam. But sometimes I get in the nervous and start to stutter. And I fumble every word for word I utter. So I just try to ch- 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 chill. But it gets worse and worse and p- 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 worse still. I need the g- g- crowd to g- g- get into it. They help me calm down and I can get through it. So higher, higher, high, get your hands to tonight to hear the crowd go
3: Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode. End of line.